We are downtown. We are historic. We are family. We are scriptural. We are First Baptist Church. He's coming on the clouds. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Sing it. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee
is our prayer, that we would fix our eyes on you, that you would be our vision, that you would speak to us in this morning. God, I love being able to gather with this Lagos family, and even in this sort of way, in an acoustic sort of setup, to be able to just hear the voices of our family gathered together. to worship and we have opportunity to worship through our giving. God, would you take what we have to give and would you take it as worship? A simple way of us responding to you and who you are. And would you take it and would you multiply it for your kingdom's glory? As, uh, as the plates go around and we continue to sing, let's continue to press in and worship. I 
turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my
I think the thing that I struggle personally most in life with is self-worth. And God's really been working on that with me. Just reminding me even through this song as we sing this morning, that first line, how great the chasm. It's true, our brokenness and our sin separates us from his love. And the reality is there's absolutely nothing that I can do to leap over that chasm. I don't know who needs to hear or be reminded of that this morning, but the reality is we can only leap that chasm because of the cross of Jesus Christ for what he has done in making us whole. Can we sing that again? How great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain i could not climb in desperation i turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night Let's sing this out then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my living hope yes god we rest in that truth today as we gather we proclaim to the people around us and to ourselves. Even when our, our hearts and our minds tell us, we're not good enough, there's nothing you could ever do. The reality is, uh, to a certain extent, that's true. But you have stepped into that chasm in our place. So we praise you for your grace. And we pray that you continue to speak to us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Isn't that the truth, isn't it? That we're all desperate to see Jesus. And more than anything, that's the message that Jesus wants to send his disciples in this encounter that we have with him coming down the mountain after the transfiguration. Um, we've been in a series in Matthew following the miracles of Jesus. And in these miracles of Jesus, Jesus has taught us over and over again what the kingdom of God is like. And while we are uh, the audience of those miracles, uh, but back then in the first century when Jesus was walking and talking, the primary audience was the hearts and minds and faith of his Disciples, that they would grow into the calling that God had given to them to be apostles of Jesus, to make disciples of all nations. They were learning. They were learning. And today is no different. Every week has been the same. It's been Jesus pressing into his disciples, asking them to change the way they think and to change their faith and who they put their faith in. And if you're new with us today, thank you for being with us. I'm so grateful that you chose to worship 
with us among these people. We are family, and we hope that you have begun even now to sense that truth and um, that we want to be more and more the family that he's called us to be. So thank you so much for coming to worship in the chair in front of you. There should be a connect here card. I don't have one with me, but it's about that big, about that big. And if you would just honor us by filling the information out on that card, and when you leave worship today, um, I will be standing in the back of the auditorium, and if you could just come greet me, I'd love to meet you if I haven't already, and I'd love for you to hand me that card. But again, we're so, so thrilled that you're worshiping with us today and hope that you feel incredibly welcome in this place. Let's pray. Father, God of glory and grace, um, Lord, what a privilege it is to open up your word and see your son. And so, Lord, we humbly ask, by your spirit, help us to see him. And may our faith expand into his bigness. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Jesus had shined on top of that mountain so bright that Peter, James, and John had to squint, and they were scared. And then, as if that wasn't enough, two men stood beside Jesus, and they knew. They didn't have to guess. Somehow they knew that the two men were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Two of the greatest men that they had heard of all their lives since they were a little boy were standing next to Jesus, who was shining brighter than the sun. So moved, Peter suggested that they just hang out on top of the mountain and even go a few steps further and, and build three different tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as if on cue, disrupting Peter's short-sighted notions from out of a bright cloud that was hovering over the sun, the father said, this is my beloved son. And I am so pleased with him. Listen to him. With that, Peter, James, and John fell on their faces. In just a moment, Jesus said, come on, get up. You don't have to be afraid. Touching them on their shoulders. And then, they had to come down off the mountain to rejoin the disciples who had stayed behind. And as they began to near the base of the mountain to rejoin the disciples, they could hear a commotion. A crowd was surrounding the nine. And a man noticing Jesus quickly broke from the crowd and ran to him. I was looking for you. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My son is oppressed by a demon, it throws him into the fire and sometimes throws him into water. And I, and I tried bringing him to your disciples, but they could do nothing. And Jesus, looking past the man to the, the, the nine disciples and the crowd that was around them, said, you faithless and wicked generation, how much longer will I be with you? There are echoes here. In this moment, echoes of God's frustration with the wickedness of men and women 
before he sent the flood? Remember when he said, how long will I strive with men? There are echoes of Moses coming down the mountain after meeting with God and seeing the people bowing down to a golden calf and echoes of Elijah rebuking the faithlessness of the people who had put their faith in Baal, the very figments of their own imagination rather than the one true God. Bring your son here, Jesus said. Immediately, once the demon that was in that boy was in Jesus' presence, began to thrash this boy from here to there, throwing him to the ground, convulsing. The demon knew. The demon knew exactly who Jesus was, but being mute, he couldn't say it with words. Not like the legion of demons and the man in the graveyard who cried out, Son of God, Son of God, what do you have to do with me? With a word, Jesus cast out the demon. And the boy was at peace for the first time in ages. And so calm that the crowd thought he was dead. He wasn't dead. He was healed. Matthew 17 leads us into a story that leads to a very private question between Jesus and his disciples. To say the least, these men are very embarrassed. And this question and Jesus' answer becomes the highlight of the story to such a degree that the encounter with this man's son is almost anticlimactic. Because it's this question and Jesus' response that we kind of hover around. We want to we hear what Jesus' answer is to his disciples who couldn't exercise this demon. And so they're embarrassed. After all, they had been successful before. Jesus had already commissioned them and equipped them to cast out demons. They have done this before. What gives now, they thought? Why can't we do this now? Why doesn't the demon listen to us now like the demon listens to us before? And Jesus tells them. He tells them in verses 19 through 20. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. This is not... Uncommon. We've heard this phrase many times up to this point, haven't we? Again, it's a reminder of what Jesus is really wanting to accomplish in these men. He wants to change their faith. He wants to stretch their faith. In this case, he wants the object of their faith to be radically different. The who in your faith always matters. The who changes the size of your faith because the object of your faith is either big or small. The disciples' faith was small because they were small. The disciples' faith was small because they were small. Somewhere along the way, they began to trust themselves and their own ability and their own association with Jesus 
rather than Jesus himself. In some way, they thought, you know, we're someone special now. After all, Jesus called us to follow him. Somewhere along the way, they just got a little full of themselves. And so when Jesus says, your faith is small, he's saying, disciples, your faith is small because your faith is focused and centered squarely on yourself rather than me. Remember what John wrote in John 15, 5? John wrote, quoting the words of Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're abiding in your own abilities and strength and ability to endure, that faith doesn't muster. Faith doesn't muster. It's too small. Uh, In Acts chapter 19, there's an incredible, almost humorous, but not humorous story of seven sons of Sceva. They were itinerant exorcists. They were sons of a priest. And it was their job to go from house to house to exorcise demons from individuals who were oppressed or possessed. And because of the stories of Jesus coming through the work of Paul, they began to command the demons by saying, we command you to come out in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Now, the demons laugh at the seven sons of Sceva, and the demons say this, now we know Jesus. And we've heard about Paul, but we don't know you. Maybe those were some of the same words the demons, if they could have spoken, because they were mute, remember, would have spoken to the disciples. We know Jesus, but we don't know you. Remember the demoniac that I've already referred to. Remember when Jesus came into that graveyard, the demon knew right away who Jesus was. You're the son of God. What do you have to do with me? Remember when Acts, in Acts chapter 16, when that slave girl was following Paul along and all day long was saying, these are the servants of the most high God proclaiming the way of salvation. Over and over again, the demon and that girl knew exactly who Jesus was. In the life of Paul, but not in the case of the disciples in this moment. Listen, you are not bigger than the things you will face in life. The hardships, the disappointments, the fruitlessness. When your faith is primarily in your own character, your own wherewithal, your own abilities, your own endurance, your own righteousness... You won't hold up against the giants you face because simply you are not Jesus. And in those moments when you trust in yourself primarily, you will turn and wonder, Jesus, where are you? And he will say, your faith is small because your faith is primarily in yourself. 
Jesus, I know, but do I know you? When your little bitty faith, remember what Jesus says, even if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Listen, when your little bitty faith, even the size of a mustard seed, is put into the bigness of Jesus, it's then we can move mountains. And what we discover in this broken world, that moving mountains looks less and less like a Jedi trick, mountain move. It's not like that. And that's not what Jesus means. He's using the mountain as effect. Remember, he's standing at the base of a mountain. He's using context to make a point. He's not saying that when you ask God to move literal mountains, he's just going to move the terrain. It's not like a Jedi trick. More and more, moving mountains is like walking in faith with the bigness of Jesus right through it as if we push it right on over. That's the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have. And that's the kind of faith he wants his disciples to have. I want you to learn my disciples whom I have called and will commission to go into the, all the world and move mountains. The only way you're going to move mountains is if you fully, fully put your trust in me, in me alone, as a real person, as one who could walk through this back door right now in any moment. The one who cast out demons. It was, it was God's grace in this moment that Jesus didn't say to that father, oh, listen, because of their lackluster faith and misplaced faith, I'm not going to heal this boy. No, he says, bring the boy to me. I'll heal him right away. And once again, Jesus does something that we all desperately need. We all desperately need to see Jesus and Jesus at work so that we can realize it's not about me at all. It's not about my association or my abilities. It's about Jesus doing the work. It's in 1 Peter where Jesus, well, Peter reminds us, it's not by your own strength that you're able to do the works of God. It's by through the strength of God that you're able to do the works of God. The moment we begin to settle on our own ability, what we think is our own ability, is the moment that the mountains stop to shake at all. Jesus says, the whole time from creation until the sending of the Son, God's ambition is, do you know me? And will you walk with me? What did he tell the people of Israel and over and over again? Who fights your battles? I fight your battles. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples now. So the question for us is, how in the world do we go big? How do we take our misplaced faith and firmly put it in the bigness of Jesus on this side of eternity? When Jesus has already ascended to the Father and we don't have the privilege of Jesus walking with us in the flesh, how do we do that? Perhaps the most honest, 
line um, from a man in Scripture is Mark 9.24. This is Mark's recounting of this story. The father says this to Jesus, if you can heal my son. And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible if you believe, Jesus says. And then the man says, I believe, semicolon, help my unbelief. Can we be that honest? Isn't that where we are most of the time? That's where the disciples were. There's probably not an iota of them that would have said that they don't believe in this man Jesus whom they have been following for some time. And yet if they were honest with themselves, they would, have been, they would have said, you know, Jesus, the reality is I get caught up in myself sometimes where I'm longing for greater belief, not less of belief, that I need to grow in belief. And that's where we are. We're on the same kind of journey that the disciples are on to go from this smidgen of belief uh, and this self-reliance uh, into ourselves to saying, no, I've got to believe in the bigness of Jesus if I'm going to walk through the hardships that this life will throw my way until Jesus returns. We're part of this journey. Going big does not mean just throwing the name of Jesus around when it suits you. It's abiding in him. It's resting in him. See, the sons of Sceva were just using Jesus' name and Paul's name as if they were using some form of magic trick and incantation. They had no personal relationship with Jesus. They weren't trusting in the bigness of Jesus because they knew him. Jesus is far more than a name. He's a person. And are you, am I, on that kind of journey into greater faith with him and in him? Is that the trajectory of your journey? The journey of faith is the journey to have a clearer view of the presence and reality of Jesus, seeing our smallness and his bigness. Y'all remember Paul's testimony? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning of chapter 12, Paul says, you know, God has given me extraordinary revelations. I've been caught up to the third heaven. I've seen things that you cannot even begin to understand, and I can't even repeat them to you. They're so grand. And then he gets to 12, verses 7 through 9, and he says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited. This is Paul. So to keep me from becoming full of myself. So to keep me from becoming self-centered and only looking at my own abilities and all the things that God has given me. So to keep me from becoming proud because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I received, a thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Our greatest need, and this is what Paul is confessing, that in that moment, his greatest need was to see his smallness so he could trust in God's bigness through Jesus. There was a point in Paul's life when he began to see himself more highly than he ought. It's in Romans 12. 
And he began to be puffed up. Look at all God has given to me. And he began to fight battles on his own. And God says, no, you're not going to be my apostle unto the Gentiles by waging war on your own, by fulfilling this on your own, because you will fail. The only way that you can succeed and move mountains is if you see yourself for who you really are, which is incredibly small. And it's in that moment that you will trust in my bigness. And God said, when you're weak, I am strong. My grace will be sufficient for you in your weakness. We don't ever really experience the grace of God at work in us to its fullness unless we understand our humility and smallness before the Lord, unless we demote ourselves. That's what the disciples needed. They needed a demotion so that they could see that it's God who does the work, not them. And Paul needed it too. And if Paul needs it, and the disciples need it, who else do you think needs it? We do. The beauty is on this journey of putting our faith in the bigness of Jesus, we're not on our own. We're not by ourselves. So how do we go big? The promise in the scriptures is the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the role of the Spirit of God. He says, um, when I go to the Father, I'm going to send you a helper. And later he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to see you. And so the main way that we continue to see the bigness of God is through the helper whom Jesus has sent the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We are not alone. Remember Matthew 28, 20. What does he tell Jesus? And he's about to ascend to the Father. They're not going to see him in the flesh anymore. He says, I am with you always until the very end of the age. How is Jesus with them always? Through the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Holy Spirit who enters the life of the believer who puts their faith and trust in Christ. And it's through that work of the Spirit that we continue to understand the presence and reality of the bigness of Jesus. This is how. I'm going to go Sunday school on y'all real quick. Sunday school. This is not new. Y'all heard these things before. There are two ways that the Holy Spirit helps us to see the bigness of Jesus and also see our own smallness. The Bible. The Bible. Um, John says some remarkable things about the scriptures, but let me just remind you of what John says about their journey with Jesus. This is what he says from the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh. This is John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen... His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known. So what John is saying is that when Jesus came in all of his fullness in the flesh, we saw grace and truth and the glory of the Father in Jesus. We saw him. And it changed their life. They moved their faith from trusting in themselves and trusting in the law and trusting their own righteousness to trusting in the Savior of the world, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Now let me take you uh, quickly to the end of chapter, uh, end of chapter uh, John, chapter 21. You can write these down, follow along with me, or just listen. They're not going to be with you on the screen. Listen to what John says. <clears throat> In verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. In other words, we saw, we saw Jesus do extraordinary things. There's no reason why we should put our trust in any other thing than the person of Jesus because of things that we saw in him. What he said and what he did. He says, we, we, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what John is saying to us as readers of this book. I know you weren't with us. We saw the glory of the Father and the Son of God. We saw grace and, G and, and truth beaming through the glory of the Son of Jesus. We saw his miraculous works. You weren't there to see those things. But we were. And that's why I've written them down. So even though you didn't see the physical Jesus do extraordinary, glorious things, you can see them vicariously through the power of the Spirit of God in His Word. You don't believe me yet. What else has Jesus said about the Spirit? Jesus said to His disciples in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. In the flesh, present, I'm not going to be that way much longer. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Why? So that through the power of the Spirit of God, the apostles could commit to paper a document that through the revelation of the Spirit of God that we can ourselves hold in our own hand so that we can see the power of, and the glory and the bigness of Jesus so that we can move our misplaced faith from our own abilities and strengths into the warrior king, God, Savior, Jesus Christ. I've given you your word. The Holy Spirit's main role is to help us see the bigness of Jesus in the scriptures so that we can gaze upon him, so that we can set our hearts and affections upon him, and that we can set our faith on him. Time and time again, I hear people tell me, listen, I just struggle with understanding the word of God. I mean, come on, I just struggle with finding time to get in the word of God, and I understand that. I'm no different than you in that regard. But the likelihood of you seeing Jesus apart from the scriptures is almost none. There's a reason that we can hold the word of God in our hand. And that is to see and savior the bigness of Jesus. Otherwise, we will get stuck in trusting in ourselves. Or the philosophies of the world. Do it their way. 
Jesus says, no, I've given you my spirit so you can see me in the word of God. That's not the only way. The other way that the spirit of God helps us to see the bigness of Jesus is in one another. Jesus said this to his disciples, no greater love than this than a man who gives up his life for his friend. After he washed their feet, he said, I want you to love each other like that. When the world sees you love each other like that, they know, you, they know that you belong to me. Remember what he said in John, 1 John chapter 4, 7. He says, beloved, this is John writing, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ought to love one another. And then he finishes this section with this. Now listen to this. It's almost like he's going back to um, chapter one of the Gospel of John. He says, no one's ever seen God. No one. But if we love one another, we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Jesus' command and teaching for us to love one another, to serve each other in the way that he served them, to, there's no greater love than this than a man who gives up his life for his friend is for this reason. It's just not a good thing to do. It's not just good ethics it's because if we begin to love each other that way, John says, it's then that the love of God abides in us and is perfected in us. And then what happens? He says, you know, you, you, no one's ever seen God. But you know when you begin to see God? You begin to see the perfected of love of God in and through one another. And so Jesus says, the Bible teaches us that there are two primary ways that we begin to see God, which we're desperate for. You are desperate to see the bigness of Jesus. The two ways that the Holy Spirit leads us to see the bigness of Jesus is through the scriptures. We see the testimony of the disciples of every miracle in Matthew or Luke or John. And we are called to see the bigness of Jesus in one another through how we love one another. Because the only way we could love like that is if God's love is perfected in us. We're desperate to see the bigness of Jesus. We see Jesus in one another when we love one another. Can I be honest with you? I mean, I am always honest with you, but can I just say something that I think is true for most of us caught up in a very Western culture and mindset, facing all the battles that we face and the philosophies and ways of this world. Listen, first, the world and the spiritual realm is totally and completely sold out to keep you from seeing the bigness of Jesus. That, that is its dedication that is its vision, that it's its mission statement, that is its goal, to keep you from seeing Jesus. And the, one of the ways that I believe it's most successful in doing that is this. I fear our faith stays small or our faith is so self-absorbed 
or we fight this faith all wrong because we mostly fight it alone. I think we struggle with loving one another as we ought. I think we struggle with having the kind of friendships that we ought. I think we all ache and long for the kind of friendships that would demonstrate to us the bigness of Jesus that we need to see. And so it's not just a matter of us getting in the word of God more. Yes, find time. Get help in understanding the scriptures. It's there through the spirit that you'll see Jesus. But more than anything, maybe we need to learn and relearn what it means to be good friends to one another. Do you have Holy Spirit-fueled friendships? Or are you a Holy Spirit-fueled friend? Do you speak the truths in the life of your friend when they're facing difficulty? Do you speak truth to them when they're not facing difficulty? Do you have conversations about the bigness of Jesus? Or do you talk about every other thing? Do you talk about how Jesus fits into the workplace or the desires that you have and longings that you have? Or, or is Jesus just on the periphery? We are desperate for the kind of connectivity and friendships that lead us to the bigness of Jesus, not just assuming that Jesus is there somewhere. And I feel like many of us don't have those kind of friendships. I think we should fight for them and pursue them. And, and maybe this is a point of personal conviction for you that say, Lord, I want to be that kind of friend. I want to be the kind of friend that no greater love than, has no greater love than this than a man who gives up his life for his friend. Let's have those kind of friendships. Psalm 121 says this, my eyes look to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I'll add this additional phrase, the mover of mountains. That's who we need to put our faith in. And we need good friendships to help us along the way. And we need to see Jesus faithfully in the word of God. And the world will do everything they can to keep you from it. By the grace of God, don't let them. The greatest mountain that Jesus ever moved was the wrath of God against our sin and death. He destroyed and vanquished that mountain through his death on the cross and the resurrection. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper to get today, what a privilege that we remember Jesus, the mountain mover. Uh, Jesus, who, uh, who conquered sin and conquered death through his work on the cross, the incarnate Son of God who lived without sinning once, even one sinful thought, and then he became as if he were our sin on the cross. And in three days, he rose victorious over sin. What a mountain mover. And Jesus says, believe in me. And the Father says, listen to him.
And we remember and we say, Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, these moments, all these moments are yours. Lord, forgive us when they're not. Uh, forgive me when they're about me or and how I sound. Or uh, Forgive us when it's just about how we sound when we play the music that we play or how we look when we walk into a room, if we're dressed right. Or... Lord, help us to be the kind of church family that aims to have more faith in the bigness of your son so that we can fulfill the commission you've called us to fulfill so that we can trust in you to wage our battles and not fight on our own. Help us to have that kind of faith. And now you call us to remember. You call us back to remember. And what grace is that? We need to remember. So bless these moments as we reflect, remember, on the bigness of your son. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with me? And will you respond with me as we work through our Lord's Supper liturgy? It's shorter this week. Paul wrote in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else believe that church that he's our mountain mover he is deacons you may come forward on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, you also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And remind you that when we gather in this place, we are God's family. 
And when we remember what Christ has done in all of his fullness of bigness, we do it together as his family. We are one together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because of the work of Jesus. And so when you go to your station together, will you reflect on that truth that we are bound together in the gospel, connected one with one another? And I'm going to ask you to do something that I know can feel very awkward. But as you reconvene with your bread and your cup, would you take a moment to pray with a neighbor? Maybe with your family and one or two others, just in your vicinity. Would, would you just pray? And maybe just one or two of you just say one or two sentence prayers. And as you close that time together, then you eat the bread and drink the cup. So remember, you'll, you'll go to the stations, you'll get both the bread and the cup, and the deacons will bless you in that moment, and then you'll return to your seats. And I'm asking you to pray with one another just for a moment, and then when you're ready, after that brief moment, take and partake in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for you. Father, bless these moments that we have, that we are your family in the gospel through the work of your son, Jesus, and all of his fullness and bigness. We rest and abide. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say, amen.
days we will sing your praise oh lord oh lord our god oh praise the name and oh praise the name of the lord our god oh praise his name First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.